This is Lee Shackelford, creator of Relativity, and if you have been listening to these recent episodes, then you know that I've been interviewing people who are somehow related to uh, audio drama, uh, uh, podcast fiction, and all these other... We, we've never really settled on a one solid name for it. Maybe that will emerge and shake out. But this time, this time, it is my great pleasure to talk with Mix Clark and Mix Clark. Um, yes! Nicely done. Thank you. And people who are fans of Sage and Savant will understand why I said that. But... <laughs> We'll also say Eddie Louise and Chip. Chip Michael, we say, right? Yeah. Either way. Okay. I answered to both. You answered to both. And hey, you. Pretty so much. I. Anyway. <laughs> this I also, is also answered it. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> damn it, Chip. <laughs> there you go. But I'd like to say thank you for using the mix. Um, honorific. I'm on a personal crusade with that when it was introduced to me as a great way to level the playing field in um, resumes. It mix began as a way for gender neutral people or people who didn't want to express um, their gender in formal places to, to use that. But it's expanding now and more and more people are picking it up. And one of the number one arguments that really won me over was that when you use mix and your last name on a resume, there's no way to tell the um, gender of the person applying. And we know that gender bias is a true thing, especially in the sciences and the geeky arts. And by removing the gender identifier through the first stage of employment, it increases the amount of diversity by 45%, just that one thing, increases 45%. the amount of diversity of the candidate pool by 45%. That's so I'm on a crusade to get everyone in the world to stop being Mr. or Miss and Mrs. and just be Mix. And it's the thing that, um, is struggled, that I'm struggling with. I mean, I am the... I'm at the top of the pool. I'm the white male. So, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it, the world was it. The world is created. The world is run by people like me, that the world is designed for people like me. And it has opened up my eyes to the idea of last night, I was putting a couple of apps on my phone. Uh, we've got some travel coming up. And so I've got some travel apps on my phone and they all wanted the uh, prefix. They want mm -hmm. to be Mr., Mrs., Dr., Miss, right. whatever. And I'm like, you, you had to wait a minute. radio buttons and, to push. Yeah. Pick one of right. these. Right. And, and you couldn't not answer them. Yeah. And when you did answer them, and I, you know, I answered being a male, I answered them, Mr. So, okay. I had some questions that were followed on that that were gender based. And I'm like, why? This is a travel app. Why do you care? What gen what difference does my gender make in terms of that? So yeah, it, it has been really eye-opening for me. Everybody so. being mixed would help like screw up data mining too, so I'm down for that. <laughs> so anyway, off of our yeah. we'll get off of our, our, our soapbox. <laughs> we have others. We'll bring them out as <laughs> as they need be. <laughs> we'll keep the floor clear for all these soapboxes coming in and going out. So I don't know. Well, I, I'm a big fan of the of your show, and uh, I and, and this is really one of the reasons why is because you've you've come up with a way to tell um, exciting, interesting stories uh, with a commitment to real science. 
if you're going to find out about real scientists, I mean, in episode one, you may find yourself running to the web to find out who Galvani and Faraday were, you know, <laughs> just, just, just to start with. Right. But I, I I'm love lucky. the fact I'm that, lucky. That we, I know who Galvani and Faraday were. So I, you know, have a leg up. We're but. talking about, we're talking about science and, and science and philosophy. We had, I, I had a, 15 or 20 exchange Twitter conversations with a gentleman who is a Hegelian expert mm -hmm. who then went into email and he was talking about, says, oh, I loved what you said in this episode, but blah, 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 blah. You, you know, you could have gone here and you could have gone there. And it's like, sure. you realize that. Which, we of course, I did in further episodes because, yeah. 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 But it was, yeah. Like, we, it was three lines. He's doing we, we, it was three lines of conversation in a drunk conversation at that. But, <laughs> hey, it, it, I love. I, and we've had uh, earthquake experts talk mm -hmm. to us of going, oh, I love the way you did this episode and it because you, you really represented that this is the kind of thing that happens and, and this is With what's the, going on. Um, we had an earthquake in, that really happened in Napoli uh, in the uh, 15th century and um, it was devastating. And our discussion just of plot points of the way that the, the um, characters had to move and how they set up temporary housing and then how that housing collapsed in a further earthquake and um, yeah, we had earthquake people coming on and saying, you know, this has been really helpful for people to visualize where the danger comes from an earthquake, because most people think the danger is the earth is going to split and they'll fall in a chasm, because that's what Hollywood shows us, because that's yes. dramatic. Right, <laughs> yeah. yeah. We saw it in the Ten Commandments. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But of course, the true danger in earthquakes is that things are likely to fall on your head and kill yeah. you that way. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's been really fun with that. And it's my way to kind of exercise my geekiness myself. I get to go, where are we going? Okay, what was the primary thought at the time? What is the way medicine is done? What is the way that different things happen? And I get to research. And then along the way, of course, the entire study of electricity has been this massive saga for 300 years. And we're still just beginning to understand um, waveforms and a lot of quantum theory and quantum wave theory, which of course you use in your own show, mm -hmm. is just, they're expanding on the work that began 300 years ago. That's right. And I love that continuum of ideas. And that gets me really excited. And then to apply that directly to people's lives, um, in my, in my characters is a lot of fun. <laughs> Absolutely. You, you remind me that I, it struck me once thinking about the history of science fiction that we have always embraced as a, as a plot point, as a, as a, uh, an inciting, uh, action or, or force, whatever it is that is at the moment poorly understood. So Mary Shelley is interested in electricity. Yes. And, then by the time of the A-bomb, everything is attributed to radiation somehow. So Exactly. So by the time I'm coming along and reading Marvel comics, as near as I can tell, gamma rays are kind of cool. The truth is, they will kill you. Yeah. So, you know, what should have happened to Dr. Banner is that he should be dead. But, you know. Um, exactly. <laughs> and so should everybody else who's been bombarded with gamma rays. But, you know, it, it just sounds cool. Radioactivity. Peter Parker has been pit, bit by a radioactive spider. Well, cancer. Okay. <laughs> you're right. So, yeah. So he's now Peter Parker with a 
painful blood disease. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's really what's going to happen. But no, it's radioactive. And then it became genetics. You know, so now it's a genetically modified spider in some of the movies. And so because uh, now there's all this cool stuff that we can talk about with that. And 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 right now I've, I'm jumping on the bandwagon. A lot of people are saying, well, it's come from the quantum realm. And we've got I, I mean, let's let's go into the realm of of AI and where computers mm. because and it was really fun. You're, you're right. You're talking about the radioactive. A lot of the movies in the 50s was that fear and i and i don't want to necessarily say that hollywood was it was uh, culpable for the fear mongering of of what the atomic bomb was doing but we were certainly living in a cold war what's going to happen when the the world is irradiated and everybody was afraid of it well mm -hmm. hollywood is kind of falling on that bandwagon in terms of genetics saying these are the bad things that are going to happen with genetics. These are the bad things that are going to happen with AI. I, I mean, you know, you think of the Terminator series, and you, think, you know, computers ruling the world. But all of this is, you know, science fiction writers, science fiction authors are, are there to go, what are the possibilities? What's the possibility of the future? What's the good and what's the bad? And what are the dangers? What are the things that we need to be aware of? And well, in and, and I love that you brought up Mary Shelley, um, because Mary Shelley is the, the mother of science fiction. And I think that that aspect, she was looking into the void and we knew that electricity existed. We also knew that there were electrical pathways in the human body. We did not yet understand how. We knew nothing. I mean, some of the early science, when you read the, the journals of the men that are exploring the nerve pathways at that time, at Mary Shelley's um, era, you know, they're speaking of they thought it was electrical because the nerves literally look like lightning. That yep. was it. That was the connection <laughs> they drew. A looks like B, so they must be connected. That's right. a totally spurious idea. That's bad science. But it was also true. <laughs> yeah. No, no it's exactly least. why there are people yet today who believe that there are canals on Mars visible from the Earth. Yeah. Be because, yeah, if you see a straight line on something, oh, it's a canal. Yeah. Oh, God. And, and, and so yeah. it looks like something, therefore it must be something. But also, there's some part of us, I think, that knows it isn't true and that is grasping for an answer. Hence the canals on Mars. We need it to be canals because we need to understand it. Otherwise, that's a geographic structure that doesn't happen in exactly the same form on Earth. And that means forces that we don't understand. And we're afraid of the <laughs> afraid of them. We don't yes. like not knowing. We don't like the things that are like, OK, that's different. That's unexplainable. I don't want you to not explain it. Um, and it, we're talking about galvanism and we, we did in the early number of the shows, I did a number of, I was researching medical journals at the time of Dr. Sage, uh, what were, what were, what were doctors doing at the time? And there were a whole series of medical journals on people who were using galvanism, who were using galvanism to do, to modify behavior. And really up until the fifties, they were still, until the 1950s, uh, we were the still 1950s, electrifying doing, people's brains to try and alter their behavior. Well, and, and actually, I hate to say this, but but 
We know people who've been in electroshock therapy. Even still. Even still. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. we're talking 150 years. Yet there's this oh. one journal that was talking about this. This doctor was going, yes, I had a whole series of patients. He had like 60 or 70 patients to which he was doing electroshock therapy in which he literally made them invalids. They were not whole invalids, but he, but his response in the thing was going, yes, too much electricity does eventually destroy the brain. And he had a whole series of patients to which he made. Basically catatonic. Yeah, basically right. catatonic. Yeah. And he was like, oh, think of the things that we've learned with this, though. <laughs> yeah. It's like, holy cow, that's horrific. <laughs> and then he's like, so, but it's science. <laughs> lovely geeky side note. If you really want to be grossed out and you find yourself in Edinburgh, there's an amazing museum called Surgeon's Hall Museum. And it is the medical museum that is associated with the University of Edinburgh, which has the um, UK's oldest medical um, university. So they have literally preserved in jars with with fluid, um, things that are from 300 years ago and coming up. And it is horrendously gross and disgusting and fascinating. If you've ever wanted to see a neck goiter the size of a second head, if you wonder why that's a constant trope in science fiction, it's in the jar in Edinburgh. You can see it. You can see why the two-headed thing is a science fiction trope because it came out in the 1700s and people see it and it gets your imagination. <laughs> they have this whole collection of, there was this, this, this uh, process where they would inject wax into the veins of uh, dead Immediately deceased. Immediately mm -hmm. deceased. They would inject wax, and then they would create this, the, the, these, these. I don't know whether they were bugs or acids or whatever, but that would eat the flesh, but not the wax. And then they would end up with this tree-like structure that would show. So this is the how they learned what the what the, how the nerves work. The circular, how the, the, what the, the, what the circulatory structure, structure is was literally by injecting liquid melted wax into somebody's heart the second they died. Now, the, the the history says it's when they died, but you know, the heart had to pump enough to push the wax through the system. They also have this wonderful section yeah. which talks about medicine in the. And we're getting off on this. And they, yeah, uh, they have this wonderful section where they're talking about. Oh, you know what? We need to advance medicine. Well, how are we going to advance medicine because we don't have people to test this medicine on? Well, there's this section why don't we just start a war so okay we start a war and 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 send about bunch of soldiers and look we've got this medical research that's documented in this museum and it's you know it's the it's the amazing horrific side of medicine uh yeah. fascinating nobody would do that <laughs> uh, so anyway the surgeon's hall museum in edinburgh well worth it if you're geeky about um, science fiction at all about the history of medicine, about how we make discoveries. And it also was helpful for me to realize that we're not that far beyond the pale, like going to space even now. How did they discover how to handle human waste in space? Because they sent 
astronauts up and discovered that pee makes lovely little globules that mm -hmm. kind of bounce around the, the capsule and poop makes not so lovely little globules that yeah. bounce around the capsule. Um, so they learned how to do containment on um, pee and poop. Now here's just a funny little gender specific and I do not mean to insult men in general. But the first idea for containing pee was a condom-like device mm -hmm. that would fit snugly over the man parts and contain the urine. The men all requested extra large. They did not measure to see no. what would fit. The men, they took the men's word at it and every man requested extra large. And they ended up with pee globules floating. Of course. <laughs> Due to the poor fit. Yes. I have a friend who uh, has spent a lot of time in China, and he's and uh, he told me that um, if you if you're translating these into English, the condom sizes, and they, you can buy them by sizes in China, but it's uh, they're small, medium, and emperor. <laughs> Which I always thought was marvelous, but yeah, and I remember I'm so glad we're talking about this because you can tell from relativity that I've always been fascinated by real space travel and yes. by the 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 kind of weird things that have that have actually happened um like the skylab mutiny where the astronauts just told nasa no no we're not going to do that um things <laughs> like that um because uh, after listening to my first few episodes my my wife said well look this guy is out in space he wouldn't say to mission control you know up yours i'm not going to do what you say and i said ha You'd think Here's that, wouldn't you? Yeah, it. let me, uh, yeah, but, but yeah, generally you don't, but, but actually that kind of thing happens more often than, than we would have any reason to believe. But, um, but yeah, so I'm, so I'm always listening to, um, you know, anything I can find that's, um, astronauts talking and I'll go anywhere to, to meet any of these, these people. And I, and I, I heard, uh, a sort of an exit interview that was not something that was shared with the public until just recently, like 50 years after the fact, but it's Armstrong, Aldrin and Collins. And Mike Collins is adamant about the fact that he, this was one of the most difficult parts in the mission for him is that he had that condom like thing on and it was too small. So, and he keeps coming back to it. They'll, they'll change the subject. He'll say, I just want to reiterate how difficult it was you know, day in and day out to have to wear this thing. My junk was in a pinch. <laughs> My junk was in a pinch. Uh, and they wouldn't let me say that on Huntley and Brinkley, but yeah. How yeah. funny. Well, you know, one of the things I like best about your show is how it demonstrates the connection between control and the ship. And that's something that we often, from the from the ground, when we're looking up and we're dreaming of being an astronaut, we're thinking only of the adventure in space. But the people in control, the sheer volume of amazingly brilliant genius level experts that it takes to make sure that those few adventures and space are as safe as we can possibly make them is stunning it's incredible the amount of the backstory and i love the fact that in your show with um control even in a series where there's been collapse and there's been um the global warming and the hurricanes happening and everything that uh, sophia has a um 
real dedication and a need to fulfill her function as control because she understands how closely the Konechki's safety is tied to herself and her role. And even if she's the only one standing and the only one maintaining that, she's going to do everything she can to maintain that lifeline. And that makes it feel very real for me. I also, I'm going to put a, a plug into for the book, The Calculating Stars. If you've not read it, um, do. It, it, <laughs> Drop it is, everything, Lee. It is. Yeah. I'm serious. Calculating Absolutely. Stars. The Calculating Stars by Mary. Robinette Qual. It, it's it's phenomenal. I mean, it, 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 it just, won a Hugo and a Nebula. It's 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 an incredible. It's it's a story of a, of a woman, one of the calculator computers, one of the people, one of the women who was doing the calculations to make sure that the space rockets would actually work. Yeah. But it's based it's on an figures. idea that an asteroid hit the Earth. Yeah, and, it's told through an alternate history learn uh, 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 lens where a meteorite hit the Earth and sent the Earth into chaos. Um, which means that they amped up plans for the space program in case Earthlings needed to evacuate. Yeah. And but, but it's 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 basically the story of the calculators um, and the computers that that put men on the moon told through that that whole process. They have this one scene and and it's so brilliantly written that the the lead, is sitting waiting for the launch. She's a computer. Her job is to calculate the telemetry so that the mission control can make any adjustments they need to make to in order to ensure that the launch goes the way it needs to go. So in but, other words, if any of the force vectors of the launch misfire mm. and it it tilts the head of the rocket even the tiniest oh, little bit of course you right. know then the telemetry is completely off and you you could miss the moon by you know so here miles. she is waiting so she's for the ticker tape standing by ready to do super fast math <laughs> and it, it she is waiting for someone to hand her the ticker tape which is all of the systems that are monitoring where <laughs> the exact position of the rocket and she's doing the calculations to say yes this is the trajectory and so she keeps handing off these pages that go this is where the ship is this is where the ship is this is where the ship is and she is there because she is super fast at calculating the math. Sure, sure. But it's the idea of we have computers to do that now. And uh, kind of going into a, a slight juxtaposition of this, a fighter pilot couldn't fly the fighter pilot planes today manually. It, there, there, it's, it's a physical impossibility. Right. The wings on a fighter jet are making between two and 3,000 adjustments every minute. That it is, like I say, it's, it is, it's a physical impossibility. It's not to say that, that they couldn't glide the jet, but there are so many yep. things happening that they simply couldn't fly the jet without all of the computer things. Wow, where does, you know, you know from How does our- a few years ago to where we were doing these manual calculations because the IBM was too slow to, to right. keep up to now we have things that that can't function without it and then you know again we go back to the science fiction story of of well what does that leave us when the machines go yeah i know you've told us to do that but no we're not going to do that (laughs) there's part of me that speculates that that's what's happening on the kronechki that it's it's the ship itself having its own skynet moment but we'll find out our skylab moment i mean skynet Ooh, that was a juxtaposition (laughs) it's both of those things yeah 
Yeah, for, it's a long story, but I, I just found myself watching uh, kind of idly uh, the beginning of uh, The Terminator just last night. And, um, you know, there's this horrific scene that begins the, the film of these machines, you know, their, their caterpillar treads rolling over human skulls. And, yeah. then there's, and then there's a title that's keyed in over it that says 2029. Like, I know, yikes. right? Okay. Hmm. That's 10 years from now. Um, exactly. You know, the more we talk about... The, the Amazon's on fire. That 10 years really good. <laughs> well, that's it. I mean, I, I, I had started out not committing to a year that relativity takes place in. And I, I found that I had to. So I said that it's that it that when we begin it's 2065, and I okay. had a number of people say, "Man, you you think the world has got 40 years left? You know, 45 years?" And and I said, um, "Okay, well, yeah. we don't. You know, I'm I, I'm I'm writing a novel. Um, I am not the writer of the family, but I'm writing a novel, and I've set it to the latter part of the 20th century. And one of the struggles that I'm dealing with is." Where is technology? And yeah. you know, you, you you have to go. You mean latter part of the twenty first century? It's it, it's the it's a latter part of the twenty. The latter part of the yeah, twenty first century. Okay. Latter part of the twenty first century, not twentieth century. Anyway, the latter part of the current century. So oh my God, it's we're twenty one yeah. something. It's still twenty something. I don't give it a specific date, but yeah. but anyway, the idea is when you're dealing with science fiction, you have to go. Well, this is where technology is gone. This is where technology is in my story. Mm -hmm. But you also have to go, yes, but what has technology done? Smartphones are just 10 years. Yeah. We're, I mean, 10 years ago, you would not have had the concept of looking, of Googling something on your phone. What, what's the meaning of this word? I have no idea. I can pick up my phone and, and yeah. look at it now. Kids who are growing up in this generation, and and I, this is a this is the important part of this whole thing, is that kids who are growing up now, we have two grandkids who are in that generation, right. who will have no concept of what it is like to not have that access. Mm -hmm. My wife and I live in a generation who understand. Computers didn't come until we were in college. Computers right. didn't come until we were in college. Microwaves. I mean, imagine yeah. a kitchen without a microwave. You simply wouldn't move into a place without a microwave. In fact, a lot of places have microwaves but won't have stoves because a microwave is more versatile. Mm -hmm. But again, 40 years ago, they weren't around. <laughs> Where do you do You're All right, you're going to set something. Your, your story is 40 years in the future. Like, oh, we only got 40 years left. Yes, but technology is moving so fast mm -hmm. that – this is the technology that is going to exist and that's kind of the result. So, yeah. Yeah. One of the things I'm very curious with your show um, is how as we begin to see and learn more of the Konechki is that where did you see the technology acceleration and how does that actually play out in real time um, um, in your show? Because I think that's a huge kind of running factor in sci-fi is, those periods of technology acceleration that that um, lead to great leaps and bounds in our understanding, and um, that the isolated man in space is deeply akin to the Gothic haunted house, to the isolated person on the moor. 
Yep. You know, it has that sort of gothic sensibility that I have to rely on myself because even if I have help, help is too distant to arrive in time. So I have to rely on myself. And that's a very lovely gothic idea translated into space. It's fantastic. Um, but uh, for this next season, I'm anxiously awaiting to see how those things kind of play out now that um, we know where we are. And I don't want to spoiler, but now that we know where we are, we know what the true scope of the problem we face is, um, at least as far as where help is coming from and where help cannot come from. I guess. Yeah. But thank you for reminding me that I need to, to sound my trademark spoiler warning, and I'll do it right here. Spoilers. 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 And reiterate that I'm still, I've still got the contest going. I'm going to offer a prize of some kind to somebody who can tell me who that, who that man's voice is, the, the male voice that's saying spoilers. It is, I promise you, it's something that was heard by tens of thousands, if not millions of people every week for years. And, and I've been saying, I don't even know what the man's name was. And I've since found out. So I had to do a little research there, but anyway, so I now know, I know where this came from. I know what the man's name was. I'm waiting for somebody else to tell me. So anyway, but uh, yeah, so I hope that covers spoilers for Sage and Savant and for Relativity. So if you're not caught up on both of those shows, uh, Sage Sage (laughs) and Savant has just started its fourth season. This will be our fourth and final. Okay. Um, So we are, we are both barreling towards a conclusion. Wow. She announced that it's the final. (laughs) She she said it. You heard it here, folks. This is the first place that's public. Yes, that's correct. Okay, Outstanding. I, have reached an understanding of what the end of my story has to be. Um, Mine is much more specifically time travel than yours. And I am at this point pretty much convinced it's not possible to invoke time travel without creating paradox. Um, somebody, Somebody more brilliant than me may yet come along with it, but I've yet to hear any time travel story um, that has been ever written um, that does not have paradox at its heart. And because of that, I decided to embrace the paradox. And when it came to me, how to end it with a satisfying paradox, uh, I thought, well, that's it. Then that's where I have to end it. Because I think one of the difficulties is if you let it go on too long, you can kind of just peter out into meaninglessness. Um, and I don't want to do that. Yeah. I, I want at the end, I want my story to have some meaning about personal ambition and the greater good and about making personal choices that have a broader effect on the world. Um, because I think too often people who have power are not aware of their power. Uh, if and, and the opposite, people who do have power that are aware of it can often be too aware of it that can cause them to do harm. So those two sort of things kind of interlap. So it's the Oppenheim effect. Um, you know, yeah, yeah, it, it yeah. all the scientists doing things that they could didn't stop to think if they should. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> um, and so that's a, that, you just made Sarah Warner really a happy lot of what we do in sci-fi. Yeah, exactly. Just, 
wrestle with those questions. That's <laughs> yeah, so true. And I love that. I love that. That um, oh, I think it's always been evident that that there's a real a real love, obviously, for science and for uh, improving the human condition at the heart of Sage and Savant. I mean, Sage is a very um, uh, liberated person for her for her time period, and yeah, we see that as a good thing. We see that as she's the future. Well, so, it's I, I it's really interesting. For Sage- example. Yeah, Sage fights for her right to not only be a scholar, but to be a recognized and and decorated and celebrated scholar like many men are. The interesting thing for me is there's a wonderful group of women in Edinburgh uh, that began in the middle 1800s. One woman wanted to go to medical school and she was denied. And um, so she got six other brilliant women who also wished to go to medical school, got together and they publicized in the newspaper first that they were going to go and, and sit that the way you get accepted in university in uh, Scotland at that time was by sitting exams. And yeah. if you pass the exam, you, you were in, right? So she got six other women. They were called the Edinburgh Seven and they all sat the exams at the same time and they got exemplary marks. really high marks all six of them were in the top five percent of marks for or all seven of them i mean were in the top five uh uh percent and so the newspaper put that out and university denies entrance to these amazing people and so the university capitulated and let them study medicine but four years later when they graduated they refused to give them their doctorate They gave them a certificate of graduation and did not make them doctors. Wow. And they tried, they petitioned, they did many things and they couldn't get it done. So a couple of them practiced medicine illegally. A couple of them went off to become nurses. A couple went to be teachers, that sort of thing. But they never got their degrees. Well, the University of Edinburgh just this year retroactively made those seven women doctors. And this was, you know, this is 150 years later. Yeah. Retroactively, we finally gave the first women to graduate yeah. with a medical degree right. and actual doctorate. With top marks. Yeah, but think about it. <laughs> I, I look at it in a different sense. The whole reason that, that Sage is starting galvanization, yes, she wants to make her mark, but the mark she wants to make is at that particular time there were a whole bunch of people coming back from war and we hadn't gone into world war one yet, but we had a whole bunch of people who were coming back from war who were maimed, who were, who were. Cannon fire is horrible and it takes yes. off arms and legs. And and so you have these people who need and appendages and just giving them a wooden stick on a leg that has a, a, a for to walk on or a one or, or a, a stick on their arm with a hook on it isn't acceptable it isn't a viable solution so let me see if i can come up with a way with which to to do this so she was really concerned about humanity and you get that so much in that first season that she has no concern for herself (laughs) but all concern for we need to discover this because we need to discover what this is spoiler alert we get into season three and she begins to study co-apperception or the ability to go from her body into another living body yeah. uh, and, and, and somewhat control or examine that consciousness. And her thought is, imagine what this could do 
for medicine, if a doctor could go, oh, well, hold on just a minute. I'm going to exit my body. I'm going to enter your body and I'm going to experience what you're feeling. Oh, that isn't a stomach ache. That's actually your, your, that, that has to do with your muscles and not your intestines. That's an entirely different thing because they could actually experience your first well, And something that's really interesting in medicine right now, um, women are often misdiagnosed or poorly diagnosed because of bias, because it is assumed that if women are admitting that they are in pain, that they're whining, that their little tiny pains are what they talk about because our cultural impression is that women are weak. Whereas truthfully, the opposite is the case. We women have been having monthly pain since we were 11 or 12 years old, whenever we first got our courses. And we have pain as a part of our constant landscape, even when we're 100% healthy. Therefore, we have a tendency to discount our pain and not recognize it soon enough to actually do the preventative medicine for a lot of things. And that disconnect between the way women self-report pain and the way women are perceived creates a situation where a lot of things, especially when it's relating to cancer or um, blood diseases or heart disease, they get discounted in the um, uh, first stages of diagnosis because either the doctor doesn't believe what the woman is saying about her pain or the woman herself is censoring and not telling her pain out loud. And so either way, it's bad. And so if a doctor could just literally inhabit a patient's brain for a moment and assess the pain for himself, um, it would be huge. And it would also be huge in the understanding between men and women and maybe eliminate some of that bias. (laughs) So I'm with Dr. Sage. I'm like, what a diagnostic stool that would be. And yet you also, because the show goes through the arc of we are not isolated. We are a culmination of the events and the situations that have happened to us. Each of us, you know, I, I have thoughts because of things that have happened to me. It, 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 it is, it, it affects who I am as a person. And I think Eddie as a writer is in a, as a phenomenal job uh-huh. of processing sage and going, well, this is what she's experienced. This is what she's learned. But some of those experiences are the experiences that she's had struggling with the university, struggling with the university of like, oh, we're going to cut off your funding because we don't really think women are viable or we're going to give somebody else the the right to actually do the rim, rim, rim reattachment. (laughs) And then, oh, by the way, when we're all done with this. We're not going to we're going to put your name on it, but we're going to put your name on it second so that you're actually not given the full credit for uh, what you're doing. And and Eddie pointed out the other day to take a quick side note that the woman who actually discovered. Global warming, the greenhouse effect. Yes. Wasn't given credit for it because she wasn't allowed to speak at the conference when she did it. So a man did it. And oh, remarkably, three years later, a man reports the similar research. And oh, look, he's discovered the global warming. Yeah. Effect. So anyway, so <laughs> all of this back to the 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 the, the effect of, of all of this on Sage. Again, somewhat of a spoiler alert. She is even her friend, Erasmus, 
steps over the bounds and she's like, I'm in this alone. Hmm. Beep. <laughs> you all, I am going to research this because I'm going to prove you wrong. So from the, the journey of, I re really need to do this because think of what this would do to medicine to, I need to prove myself to where am I going? It is a, a, a wonderful journey to, to see the whole story was started on the idea of we had no mad female scientists. So Dr. Sage was going to be this <laughs> mad female scientist. Female mad, well, it's not that there are no female mad scientists, but they're always evil. They're always the villain. That's in, what in I was going to say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I could think of several, but yeah, they're always on the, uh, the dark side there. Yeah. Exactly. And Dr. Jekyll is not a villain. He's also an obsessive. True. He's a scientist who goes a little down the dark path, but he's not a villain. Neither is Dr. Frankenstein. No. And I can't think of a single female scientist who was portrayed as the mad genius who mm -hmm. wasn't evil. And I was determined to write one because, you know, that's what they say. If you can't find the story you want, write it. Mm -hmm. There you go. Um, so I was determined to write. And so it's been very important to me to kind of bring all those different layers of um, meaning and impetuous into Sage's character of why she does what she does. And she's pretty, you know, uh, the girl who plays Abigail, her name is Emily and Emily's wonderful, but she has the world's best eye roll. And whenever Dr. Sage has done something intemperate and rude, which she does a lot, uh, Riley will just, or Emily will just roll her eyes and go, oh my God, Sage. <laughs> well, and makes and you want to make a movie. Doesn't it? The way we do our recording process is we actually sit around. Uh, Emily is in Florida, so she uh, Skypes in. Skypes in. But, but we're sitting around and we do a read through of the whole script as we're just sitting around and we talk about things. It's like, oh, wait a minute, we should change these words a little bit and do this little thing. So it's a fine kind of a fine tuning and adjustment. And then once we've got that, we do a temp track, a, a, a read through recorded. So everybody's on their own, uh, their own track. Um, and, and then when in each of the individual voice actors do their part, their phones have, um, the other voices. So you're acting off of the other person, um, which I think has helped us a lot. But in that, I have one snippet and I've, I've saved it. <laughs> it is, I don't remember, I don't remember now. I think it was Sage who says something. It may have been Savant who said something. But anyway, somebody said something and there is this delightful little chuckle from Emily, which is perfect because it is not, it was not in the script. But it is delightful because it is this moment of going, yep. oh, yeah, that's bad. <laughs> that, yeah. And, and, and yep. so it, those, those, are little of, those are little moments that I take out and I go, okay, mm -hmm. that's, that's a soundbite that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw in somewhere yep. else. Yeah. It isn't part of the recorded process, but it's definitely one of those moments. Now, I'm curious. We record ours month by month. Um, ah. Yeah, not going to do that again. Um, <laughs> But you do yours more in advance. Like for second season, did I see that you had the entire second season written? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I write every season in batches, which is why the show has been off the air for so long, because I was writing 20 episodes. Um, so, and I do, I've got, I've got all the scripts now and the actors have them. And so we're recording them in, in bits and pieces. 
And do um, you guys do table reads or? No, no. They, they are completely, um, well, a few of us are in the same, you know, physical you know, location so we can oh, get together. Nice. But, uh, but no, Elaine and I have never recorded in the same room. Wow. Uh, or even at the show. same time. That's amazing. Cause and is, uh, yeah. And, yeah. And I, I know I've said this a thousand times, but it, but I keep being astonished at Elena's ability to read my mind because she'll record lines that are in response to things that Chris is saying. You'd swear that her response is uh, to my specific inflections and tone of voice and, and everything. I don't know how she does it. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, no, it comes across have, really well in your I'm, show. I'm in stun. I'm, 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 a, I'm the sound engineer for the show. And, yeah, and you I understand. Animated, animated shows, you know, Shrek or, or, or Frozen or The Little Mermaid, all of those shows – they all do. The actors are all in a booth on their own. They're recording their shows. In fact, there's a wonderful story about Shrek and the fact that that um, uh, who's the guy who does Shrek? Mike Myers. Uh, Mike Myers got done with the first series. They were actually through the first wave of animation. So they were beginning to polish the animation. And he went, yeah, 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 yeah guys, no, the, the voice is all wrong. I need to re-record. And he re-recorded his voice uh, into what we now know is the, the, the Shrek character, um, which means they had to adjust a whole bunch of stuff. But anyway, the, 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 the point is, as, an, as a sound engineer, I'm going, wow, I don't, I don't even know, I don't even understand the process of, of, of actors who go in and go, yeah, I'm just going to read these lines and then the sound engineer going, yeah, I have to put those all together so that they make sense and they sound like they're in the same room and they're whatever. So I, I applaud you that that's, <laughs> you know, you. to one, to have the actors who can do that kind of stuff really well. And then also to be able to, like I say, to, to put it together and have it, that, it, it, that, that, um, not in my world. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> that's because you have a brain in your head. <laughs> no, I, I've, I've regretted it many, many times, but yeah, that, but no, I, it, you're right. It's, um, I, I have the actors who can do it, but you reminded me that one of my favorite things that's ever happened was that, and I didn't even think it, about what could go wrong with it was that I had Sophia kind of mocking Marcus a little bit and, yeah. and I said something, I recorded my lines by myself Clarence, who plays Marcus, he recorded his by himself. And of course, Elena recorded her Sophia line. So I had, those are three isolated recordings. But Chris tells Sophia to take a, a headache pill. And later on in the scene, Marcus says, did you take the pill like Dr. Mason said? And Sophia says, yes, I took the pill like Dr. Mason said. She, she said it the way he said it. Yes, I took the <laughs> pill the way Dr. Mason she never heard, she had never heard him say it. But, that's fantastic. But, but the way it played off, she was mocking his delivery. I thought, okay, that's just creepy now. We're, we're into a different place now, Elena. No. One thing, um, one thing to, 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 to just go in, in terms of the way we do our show, and then he made the comment that, that the actors actually have the other voices in their, their, their phones and their headset mm. while they're recording their scenes. One of the things that I like including, and I think Emily does a phenomenal job, are small alterations. 
mm-hmm. while yes. someone is speaking that when you're just doing lines, unless you go, yeah, I'm going to include these little bits and blobs because this is what this person's saying and then allow the sound engineer to put them in. But she does all these little vocalizations that, again, are not part of the script, but are so much of what puts her in the room. Yeah, puts her present. Puts her present. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it's there are there have been times that she's done recording. Oh, well, there's just two or three lines. I'm just going to do those two or three lines and I'm, after, I'm not going to worry about listening to the other person. But if it's a long protracted something, particularly if somebody's got a long speech and, and Eddie, or if there's any Eddie loves to write long speeches. <laughs> <laughs> so, if, you know, there's any of that, that that getting those little vocalizations is for me is priceless. I love those moments. I don't know as a listener that that, that people hear them or notice them or that, that they make any difference for well, me. I do, but I am keyed to listen to things like that. So. Yeah, I'm probably not the person to ask, but <laughs> but also yeah, I think that, that I, I think that that's one of the things kind of broadening the subject a little bit uh, that I love about audio drama in specifically is that audio drama has a huge variety of fans, everything from the casual listener who kind of is background listening while they're doing something else mm-hmm. to the intensive listener who will play and replay yes. your episodes to get every last nuance and detail. Right. And that whole spectrum of fandom allows us as creators kind of that, oh, hey, I consciously think sometimes, oh, hey, this is an Easter egg for the people who like Sage because of philosophy. Yes. So I'm throwing in this little thing here. Or, oh, hey, this is an Easter egg for science fiction geeks that I'm throwing in this little time travel reference to to another famous time travel show or time travel thought or that sort of thing. And so that allows me a lot of fun as a creator to play to is realizing I have such a diverse audience of interests and – Audio is uniquely suited. I think it's partly because we haven't been found out by the, the big Hollywood machine studios mm. yet. to the most yeah. part yet. Yeah, spoiled, yeah. So our creative landscape right now, our creative palette is is so ad- diverse and, and eclectic, and uh, we can draw on that. And I love that about audio drama. It's one of the really, really dynamic and exciting things about writing in this genre. I think I, I think it's just the 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 silent movie era in film in the fact that I mean you know you think about Metropolis when it first came out was so incredible it still as a film still is is an incredible film and that it was all because nobody was telling them what they could and couldn't do that's right they just went. We want to do something like this, so let's do this. What and let's, can we what do? Can we do? Yeah. And all of a sudden, you, know, you get all these things. And yes, Charlie Chaplin has some scenes that that come in that kind of mimic uh, Metropolis. After that, that are that are that are interesting. So you get some of that, which is also happening in audio drama. That's um, right. But, but yeah, right. The opening scenes of Modern Times are a deliberate reference to Metropolis. You're right. Yeah. Right. And yeah. we're in this thing of going, oh, yeah, we're in a we're in a field that's that's really in the Wild West and the cutting edge. And Yeah. And- so, yeah so, OK, the Kanichki is a wonderful thing. Um, you just put out the the um, shift diagram on the discord. 
And you talked about how Chris's journey is just through the one little section of the thing. We have a really hard concept visually understanding how it might be possible to have a ship with the um, uh, square footage of a state or um, the size of a country or even more the size of, of a globe, of a world. But the fact of the matter is, if you think about our galaxy, our, our solar system is a tiny little blip in a galaxy, which is a tiny little blip in a universe. And our solar system has multiple planet-sized objects, Earth being one of the smaller yes, of those planet-sized yes. objects, which is bouncing around in it. And we're just this tiny little blip. So a planet-sized ship is not really that um, out of realm if you were avoiding the gravity wells that a, a planetary body produces and you'd have to you know, do the science for that. But the point is your long thin arrow of a ship yeah. um, being so gigantic, I don't think we could encompass that in film. I think our mind would reject it as not being possible as all being the same thing. Yeah, yeah probably so, yeah. yeah. Space stations being that big. But we just really, the idea that a ship, that something that moves could mm-hmm. be big is hard for us. And yet in audio, you can, you've created the ship and there's so much of the yeah. ship yet that we have no idea what's there and what's to explore. And as far as territory for writers, that's uber rich. Yeah. Yeah. And that was certainly the idea was to have, yeah, the bigger it is, you know, it's, it's, uh, Shannon Perry of Oz nine. She makes this joke all the time. She's got 50,000 people in the freezer. You know, if she, yeah. if her characters get boring, she can just thaw out some more. So it's, uh, I think it works exactly the same way. You know, she could, I don't think she's in well, any danger of her characters being boring. <laughs> certainly we're not getting anywhere close, are we? But you, you mentioned Easter eggs a few minutes ago and it reminded me that I, I, I have a, a short list of burning questions for you here and we've done a pretty good job of hitting on them all anyway. But, but I got to ask you about planet of the apes because <laughs> the 1968 film is one of my favorite things in life. And was there a, did yeah. I get a Planet of the Apes shout out there? Did I? I'm sorry that that scene on the beach with the the um, at, the at the end with with the famous statue that is seared into our memory. Those of us of a certain age, isn't it? That's true. Yeah, but um, Sage did in fact get a fire hose turned on her at one point, and she's literally in a madhouse when it happens. Yes. And I thought, is she going to say it's a madhouse? because there'd be no reason to because everybody already knows that yeah it was it was very tempting and i have to watch that sometimes because my own pop culture references will come and reflect and i'm like no come on that's eddie not sage yeah right yeah you've given yourself permission to use anachronisms though because once they've jumped backward and forward through time they do know things that their peers wouldn't know (laughs) Exactly. So, you know. I also struggle with the idea that that although it is set in Victorian times outside the time travel, it is set in Victorian times. We are writing it for a modern audience. Yes. So yeah. you aren't. I mean, while she ha- certainly writes somewhat in a style that would be indicative of 
There are things that she says in the way that she says them that would be similar to way novels were written, Lady Chatterley's Lover, blah, 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 that, 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 that are written that way. And yet the, the overall flow, the overall texture, the overall color of the thing is a very modern script. It's, yes. it, it plays for a modern audience and it has to because it's playing to a modern audience. Now, see, I'm on the other end. I am I am the one who goes, oh, look, we could throw in this reference. And oh, look, we could throw in that reference. And oh, look, we could throw in this reference. And it's like you throw them in innocuously in the idea that the people go, oh, that's hilarious. They're referencing the latest Game of Thrones episode. Yeah. Yeah. With without, you know, without specifically saying Game of Thrones, but it, it it's it's that reference is like going, yeah, I love that. I find that humorous. But mm-hmm. but Eddie made the comment when we first started the show and, and you hear it in the first three episodes that, that there's kind of this this shift from. The color of what we're doing to the color of what the show really is. Uh, no, to be honest, to the color of what Eddie was capable of writing. No, no, no. <laughs> and it, it's funny, we don't have any recordings of the, the first recording session, but we get done with the first read through, and Eddie goes, No, Chip, it's not a comedy. And I'm like, I get that. Obviously, <laughs> it's not a comedy. This is so you, you kind of have to. My comedic moments. My first read through, Savant was a goofball. Says, but Sage, we died. <laughs> you know the very, very melodramatic. Oh my God, this is this is this is campy beyond belief. And she's like, no, you you can't do it that way. That's not the script. But in direct answer to your question, the two things with the Le Grand Douche, which were the consideration, was you're you're quite right. This is a madhouse. Um, and the second was, um, we went on a cruise once and one of our friends that we met on the cruise had been to a very exclusive and beautiful French spa. And she was recounting all of the beautiful things that had happened to her there, the massages (laughs) and the facials and stuff. And then the final thing that she'd chosen to do was the most expensive on the menu. And it was Le Grand Douche. And it was basically being stood in front of a brick wall and having a fire hose sprayed at you. (laughs) And her description of that was so hysterical <laughs> that it was like, okay, I have to use that. And my mouth was the perfect place to do that. You paid money for this? <laughs> yes, exactly. And it was cold water. It was just literally five minutes of being bombarded yeah. um, with a fire hose. <laughs> uh, well, I have also been dying to ask you about the music because um, I think Sage and Savant and Welcome to Night Vale probably have this this sort of this market cornered this idea of a a, a drama narrative that is interrupted uh, pleasantly for for a musical interlude. And it's funny that you mentioned Welcome to Night Vale because that's a direct ripoff of Welcome to Night Vale's weather well, report. I um, I, 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 the, I didn't want to call it that. <laughs> it really was. It was intentional. Um, yeah. It's an homage. Um, I love yeah. the fact that Night Vale used their weather report as a chance to um, introduce me to new music. Mm -hmm. And 
Um, the steampunk world is a world full of a lot of really amazing and unique and marvelous music makers that don't get play in major radio or that sort of thing. So it was a chance for me to go, hey, I've got all these friends that make music and I'm just going to do the Nightville thing and 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 rip it off. And then it also because I, I structured the show in a kind of a more Victorian idea with the omniscient narrator and the direct um, call out to the audience. Yeah, and having the the musical break is is a is a thing that fits in with that whole idea anyway. So um, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. it was a chance for me to share my musical obsessions and all the neat artists that I know and love. It's really fun. That probably one of the things I'm going to miss the most about saying goodbye to Agents of Volunteers. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure there's another you know project noodling around inside that uh, great brain of yours. So. There's half a dozen projects yeah. around. It'll just okay. be listening to this works. interview and you're <laughs> a music maker. Please find us at chip at sageandsavant.com or eddie at sageandsavant.com. Drop us an email and, and give us a link to your music. And, and if we like what we hear, sure, we'd love to feature you. Now, Chip, you're, you're a composer uh, and performer as well. I have a what, master's degree in music composition. I, I really love, there's um, there's like a seven note motif that um, you run through the whole show. It's the Dies Irae. The Dies Irae is a 12th century, 13th century plain chant. It is probably older than that. We don't have mm. music notes explaining it, but it's, it is used in... The mass. The mass, it has got a whole series of tunes. So, um, Kyrie Eleison, the Eleison, Kyrie Eleison, that's the opening to mass that that, that is. And so, composers everywhere have used the themes that typically go with Kyrie Eleison to create the themes that they would then use to represent the opening of the mass. Well, the Diasiri is the theme that's used for the Mass Requiem. Uh, it's going, our show deals a lot with death um, every episode. Death is no barrier. Wow. And so the Dies Irae was... There's a, a lot of death in your show. That's, that's, that's it. That, that is the theme. Um, okay. And so that plays... So he uses that theme um, a, a huge amount in the composition of the various bits, uh, inverting it and retrograding uh-huh. it and all the things you do musically to play with it. And uh, kind of tied together the music that is the underscoring music and the in and out music. The season two, I begin to play with um, light motifs, which is each character or each action or each moment has a theme that then plays. So in that, when the character comes in, before the character comes in, or when something momentous happens with a character, that theme plays. Uh, if you're studied music, Wagner is a, a is kind of where this whole thing really takes off. Sure. Uh, in the fact that he's got hundreds of light motifs in his operas, uh, you certainly hear them. Dun 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 dun. dun, dun. A That's motif. a light motif. <laughs> and, and every time that that, that, that Williams know, uses light motifs yeah. a lot, <laughs> and he talks about it. So it was it was poignant to come in and go. Okay, in season two, I'd like to do more music. I've kind of done the Diasiri, but I, I I need to to go beyond that because I want to do the characters. So I wrote a a, a light motif for each of the characters, 
And then throughout season two, that light motif goes, it, it, it continues through. Season three, I venture away from the light motif um, for two reasons. Uh, partly, I typically am at the 26th, 27th of the month, and the episode is to go live on the 1st. I'm at the 26th, 27th of the month when the episode is finally done to the point that I can actually compose the music, and I am at a frantic pace to go, <laughs> oh my goodness, I need to create music for this. I kind of set myself in a, I, I, I dug a hole for myself in season two in creating fully composed pieces. I mean, there's 30, 35 minutes worth of music in every episode from 25, from the middle of season two through the end of season two. Um, and he wasn't sleeping. And he wasn't I wasn't sleeping. Yeah, and he was it, ugly, no. so I made him cut that back a little. <laughs> so in season three, I, I kept the character motifs. I continued to play with them. But I expanded them quite a bit. So, in some respects, there's a there, there's a lovely uh, section in three o three, which is the haunted house one, um, where if you're not looking at a piece of music, if you weren't looking at and you're examining the notes, you would never recognize the themes that are there. Yeah. But they're they're, they're <laughs> certainly they certainly are, and they're they're played with in such a way. But they're mutated. To, they're mutated to the point because they're in a haunted house. So something I would like for Chip to do is at the end, as we're nearing the end of of um, our entire story, I would love him to release like an orchestral suite of his writing from across the show. And so words out, Chip, challenge down. Yeah. Well, that's Creep. at least, that's at least two votes in favor of that yeah, because sure. I would love it. Yeah. He's done some amazing work with the show and I don't think it necessarily soundtrack music is truly fantastic, but basically the largest themes are the ones that get the most attention. And some of the most interesting work is often in the smallest things that you just don't hear in this film or in the audio drama. But when you hear it isolated, just as music, you go, Whoa. <laughs> it made a wonderful statement. And I gonna, I'm only going to paraphrase him because I don't have the exact quote, but he, he made the statement is some of his best music is the music that no one realizes actually was there. No one hears Absolutely. it. Absolutely. It's the music that set the mood, that changed everything about the way you feel about the scene. Mm. And that but you it did it invisibly. But you aren't paying attention to the music. And that's not the music. I mean, again, you know, the um da 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 yeah, right. not to you go know that. to Star Wars and I hope I did enough that, that we don't get copyright infringement. Um <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll trim that down. <laughs> um, but it's the kind of thing, it's like, you know, as wonderful as these heroic themes are, mm -hmm. it's the, and yeah, I know the spoiler alert, the best moment, and I don't remember which, whatever Star Wars movie it is, but it's the fight between Luke and, and Darth Vader in the, 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 the fire pit. The, where that you know the whatever and and Darth Vader the Jedi yeah yeah that it's it's in that moment there's actually forty five seconds forty six seconds where there's no music at all it's in that scene it's like you're going going and going and going and going and then it disappears and yeah. it's so That's powerful 
I remember years ago buying on vinyl the uh, the soundtrack <laughs> album for Ben Hur. Say again. Vinyl is cool. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Now, now I'm cool again. Um, <laughs> I bought the soundtrack album for Ben Hur because I was very curious about the Chariot Race. I really wanted to hear that music and fantastic Oscar-winning score, Miklos Rocha. Yeah. Uh, there isn't any music behind the Chariot Race. In the Chariot Race, I think they let the music of the um, the hooves and the jangling of the harnesses and the yep. wheels be the only soundtrack. Which, which yeah. of course, you know, it works brilliantly. But yeah. Um, no, my, my favorite piece of music ever written for the cinema is in Raiders of the Lost Ark, and it's called The Well of Souls. Yes. Yes. People who know that score, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yes. and it's not the Raiders March. It's not, it's, that's not, you know, the, the, the tune that everybody knows from Raiders. Ah, boy. I'm going to probably be heretical. I think that Williams does better in his quiet small moments than he does in his big bombastic marches. Big bombastic marches are pandering. They're crowd pleasers. They're easy to sing along with, as it were. They're easy tunes to remember, but they're not necessarily the most emotionally evocative. Yeah, but in those I think he'd agree with you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's why it's why his themes for I really am. Yeah, no, I, I just he's overcredited for his marches and undercredited for other pieces. And Well of Souls is a good, good point of that. And yet, you know. Catch if you can has got such very different music. It's the it, it harkens back to when John Williams was a jazz pianist. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and going, wow, this is just fun. Yeah. 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 Mm. What a moment. Music geeks. Ah. <laughs> uh, exactly. Yeah. Boy, when you say uh, the, the great marches and things like that, his his bombastic themes, I guess because he started out as Irwin Allen's uh, pet, uh, you know, all of those shows are credited to Johnny Williams, you know, yes. it seems funny now, but yeah, I mean, he, 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 he's always known that that, that, that was his, uh, his stock in trade was writing things like a uh, land of the giants and the time tunnel and the uh, lost in space theme and things like that. So, but yeah, yeah. I, I, you hear, but, but, uh, but Luke Skywalker's theme and, and, and princess Leia's theme are so, are so quiet, uh, by comparison and so, um, contemplative. So, well, he said that every leitmotif that has ever been in any of the star Wars films is going to be in rise of Skywalker. They're all there, he says. So, ears open. That'll be interesting. I think that that probably I'm I'm more waiting for Rise of Skywalker for that. Yeah. <laughs> to see how the culmination, because also honestly, Williams is is nearing the end of his career. This may be the last major film he scores, mm-hmm. you know. And so it's kind of the whole arc of this story that that he's scored for so long and i'm really looking forward to seeing what he does with it it's it's star wars greatest hits as a composer love that we have his music i love that he has had a great 
conducting career, the opportunity to conduct lots of other pieces of music as well as his own. Yeah. I would love to see John Williams go into, okay, let me share with the next generation what I know mm. and, and become, become an instructor. I, I mean, Yes, you can you can work for the stables, but but it just it, 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 the man has so much knowledge. And, and I'm, I'm saying that to John, about John Williams. I think that, that a lot of the other great composers that are out there be aware that that your legacy is great music, but your legacy is also building the next generation. So take the moment to find the young or the not so young mm -hmm. composers that you can help shape to make the new ones. I say this because Beethoven studied with Haydn. Yeah. And we <laughs> think of Beethoven as this amazing composer, and he was. We think of Haydn as this amazing composer, and he was. But so much of what made Beethoven the incredible composer was some of that was that time he spent with Haydn. So sure. great film composers keep the music alive. All right, next soapbox. But actually a really good segue in that one of the things that I love best about the audio drama community is that there is a very strong um, uh, element in the independent community, at least, of nurturing other shows and of nurturing each other. And for example, you do Relativity and here you are interviewing Sage and Savant. I think that um, that is one of the great strengths of audio drama at this point and why it's such a fantastic dynamic community to be a creator in at this moment in time is because that nurturing is very much a part of it. Boy, isn't that the truth? And I, I really got into it very green and naive and coming from the world of the live theater, which can sometimes be kind of pugnacious. And I, I think I came in with my with my dukes up, like, okay, I'm ready to fight with these people. And the people said, hey, hey, welcome aboard. Hey, come on in. Uh, can we get you anything? Can we? Uh, oh, okay. Uh, awesome. Well, hi. Yes. <laughs> um, and I was I was green enough to go. I mean, Eddie had known the, 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 the Welcome to Night Vale. She'd introduced me to Welcome to Night Vale, but I had really not explored the audio fiction, the audio uh, podcast community even yeah. uh, to any extent until the, like kind of toward the end of season two. And then it's like going, oh, yeah. there's only the people who are podcasters who are willing to talk to us. What? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Wait, wait, wait. There's, there, there's... There's people who are, who can who can oh I could actually this is the way to do that wow yeah, people will oh, share oh, boy. years ago yeah well I, I just looked at my clock and realized we've been talking for an hour and a half and um, I don't see any reason why we should stop so um, everybody else go away and uh, <laughs> we're just gonna I'll I'll play the outro music and. <laughs> We'll, we'll just keep talking, but I don't expect anybody to hang on to this podcast for more than an hour and a half, but, um, uh, but golly, it's fun talking with you guys and we're going to do it live and in person in April Wi-Fi, 2020. Wi-Fi sci-fi. Now I can say you should go to Wi-Fi sci-fi dot O-R-G. We could not get the dot com, but we're a nonprofit anyway. So there you go. Wi-Fi sci-fi dot org and get all the deets. 
And uh, very soon we'll have some crowdsourcing going because um, this is going to cost us some money to do. We're not. It's, it's a big deal bringing science fiction shows into a single performance venue to perform live. Um, and we're coming from all around the country to do it. Yeah. Um, and we just got done talking about the positive feeling of the thing. The opportunity, and, and, and yes, there's still a lot of details to work out as to, to what all the situation is. The opportunity to meet and engage with all of these creators and performers and, and, and shows is an ex- experience like no other. I, yeah. I mean, you're really, you're really going to see, I, I think the energy is going to be at, a, at an all-time high. I think that when the whole thing is over, the six, uh, our six groups, we're not, none of us are going to want to leave. <laughs> I just, we're, we're going to. Seattle's going to be like, go home. Um, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that there Go are, home, Osnan, you're drunk. And one of the things I love about Wi-Fi Sci-Fi and the way we're setting it up the most is that we're putting consideration both for fans who get to be there in person, but also for fans who don't get to come. If you support us in doing this live show, um, we've got some very special treats that are kind of going to come to all fans, regardless of whether they get to come to the show or not. And um, that's an amazing thing. There's many, many things to be announced and things, but a lot to be looking forward to next April, April 25th. Stay tuned. Yeah, because, yeah, between now and then is when the people who can't be there in person are really going to hear about um, what's in it for them. Because surely that's the vast majority, you know, is people who uh, uh, will not be there with us live, but uh, can be part of the experience nonetheless. It's going to be, it's kind of amazing. So, So, Lee, um, I am desperately excited for what's to come in uh, Relativity coming forward, especially episode 42. Yes, <laughs> we're all we're all big uh, Hitchhiker fans. So yeah, we're talking about Easter eggs and trying to, to show some restraint about our references. I, as soon as I realized I was writing episode 42, I thought, oh, this is too good to pass up. But I, <laughs> but also I don't want to rend the fabric of my own show. So yeah, the, the references are there, but you do have to be, listening closely to get them and you'll get them. You'll have no trouble. But they're there. So give everybody the, uh, the scoop and the skinny. What, um, uh, if, if they are not familiar with Sage and Savant and if you're not, then what the hell are you doing? Listen to this. Uh, how do you, how do you find it? And how do you, how do you get in touch with y'all? We are Sage and Savant and we did once thing smart and that's our branding. So on Twitter, at Sage and Savant. Our emails, Eddie at Sage and Savant or Chip. He's the sound engineer, director, and composer at Chip at Sage and Savant. Um, Sageandsavant.com is our, our website. Yeah. And our show's available everywhere you find uh, podcasts just by searching Sage and Savant. Um, it'll come up on anything, iHeartRadio, Spotify, iTunes, Player FM, Player FM. Stitcher, yeah, Radio Public, we're there. Um, find us. The one thing about my show, um, it is episodic, but it does have a long arc through it. So if you like to binge, now is a good time to binge and get caught up. You can follow Sage's Descent into Madness and uh, figure out the what our spoiler. Are. 
Yeah. <laughs> are between 35 to 40 minutes in length. So we have about uh, 30 hours of binge worthy entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a very, very big finish planned. Um, I, the only thing I can say about it so far is it has already made my cast cry, which I'm taking as a victory. Yeah. Oh yes. No, I had somebody write me after they got um, my scripts and and, ju- and their message just said, "You bastard." Yes. yes. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. Writers are horrible people. Yes. Parties <laughs> because we're very witty and entertaining. <laughs> Yes, as a survival mechanism, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, folks. Thanks again. Thank you, Lee. Have a great afternoon. Awesome. You too. See ya. Don't you know what you're doing to me? Don't you know that I just can't think? Don't you know what you're doing? What you're doing can't be human. Don't you know what you're doing to me? Don't you know? In the first season of Moonbase Theta Out, Roger Bergato Fisher sent official reports on the base shutdown. In season two, we hear another side of the same story, where things get a lot more personal. I am not giving up, and I'm sure as hell not letting you give up on me. Crush that pop can there for me. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. I'd love to see that calmly do a real day's work. Broadcasting, this is Rajo Bergardo Fisher. I love this place. I love the feel of it. I love what I've cultivated. You did not program me to express dishonesty. Moonbase Theta, out.